Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam Morris, the Sid Barrett Tessa's Roger Waters. With me is Tessa. I don't know how I feel about that comparison. Stop building that wall over there. And Andy. What member of Pink Floyd am I? Am I pink? Uh, no, I, I think you're the, I think you're, you're, you're our backbeat, you're our Nick Mason, person who has made zero trouble for the band in the history of ever. That's right, zero trouble, that's me, good old Andy, zero trouble Andy, no problems caused by me, I never do anything to go against the status quo. <laughs> this week, I'm getting my motor running, heading out on the highway, etc. Tessa isn't afraid to care. And Andy visits what I will contentiously label the best Japanese RPG. I was actually really, really shocked, Sam, that you had never seen the film Easy Rider. I had never seen it before, but it really seemed like something that you would have seen before and like known everything about everything involving with it. Wasn't that film made by the same people who made The Monkees? Yes, as a matter of fact, this is the movie that Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider made after producing the Monkees television series, making enough money to finance films, and making their first film with the Monkees, Head, which you talked about several episodes ago. This was the next movie that Raybert Productions made. Wait, isn't this a song? All my friends know the easy rider. I think you're singing Low Rider. No, no, no. That's a rapper from Florida. No, that's Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so I had never seen Easy Rider. It, it was obviously a big glaring hole in my counterculture, pop culture knowledge, considering that 20 years ago, I was definitely immersed in counterculture. 20 years ago, 20 years removed at that point from the counterculture, I was immersed in it. Easy Rider was written by Peter Fonda, directed by Dennis Hopper, stars the two of them along with Jack Nicholson. This really seems like a thing I should have seen, but all I really knew about it was the soundtrack. Right, like I said. A very young Jack Nicholson, I might add. It Was this one of his first films? Because I know he directed Head. But was this one of his first appearances as an actor? He had been around for a little bit. Uh, he received a lot of attention for this film, and it was pretty much upwards to stardom. But he was pretty established at this point. Andy, I assume you have not seen Easy Rider? No, it's way before my time. Anything before 1989 is dead to me. And we're going to circle back to that sentiment in the next segment, but... Do you have any idea what the film is about? It is about... Hold on. I don't know much, but I do know the last frame because the Venture Brothers famously referenced it. Okay, I was going to say, don't mention that because I actually had no idea how the film ended before I saw it. I, I had not been spoiled. I didn't know. Wow. I'm sure, I'm sure people are really, really, uh, you know, avoiding... You know, it's like the Avengers Endgame. You don't want to know how Easy Rider ends. Well, I mean, the, the, but the, the, the basis of the plot is there are two motorcyclists, kind of counterculture, hippie motorcycle people, but not Hells Angels types, right? They are, they have just made a big drug score. 
right? Uh, from Phil Spector. Not Phil Spector, the record producer, but Phil Spector, the record producer, playing a part. Okay. Now, is this before or after he goes crazy and tries to kill the Roman? Or is this why Bef- he does? Well, you know, you said, is this before or after he goes crazy? And I was going to say definitely after. But then you said tried to kill the Ramones, and I don't think that had happened yet. So, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I do like the idea of Easy Rider being the origin story for Phil Spector killing the Ramones, though. Like, we're just seeing, like, a very brief snippet of how he came into that mindset at the beginning of this movie. This was kind of around the time that he murdered Let It Be, though. Justice for Let It Be. The B movie. For everybody who wasn't Andy, that joke will make sense. Now, the basic structure of the film, after they make this big drug score, they travel across, across the country. They're trying to get to New Orleans in time for Mardi Gras uh, and their eventual destination, which is Florida. They, they pick up a young lawyer played by Jack Nicholson somewhere in Texas. And during this trip, during the entire span of the film, we see America, the America that could be and the America that is. What about the America that was? Uh, we actually do yeah. see that because it's from 1969, which is way before it's I was true. born. It's true. So, so Andy, you'll like this, speaking of the America that was. So uh, Peter Fonda wrote this movie, and he wrote it because he wanted to do a modern-day Western. What would those characters look like in the 60s? Well, they would ride, in the words of Bon Jovi, on a steel horse. Pause for laughter. I don't get that reference either. It was before 1989, so there it is. Dennis Hopper's character is called Billy, and Henry Fonda's character... Sorry, Peter Fonda's character... Henry Fonda is very different from Peter Fonda. I just want to let the record show. That's a mumble fact. And by the way, Peter Fonda's daughter... Bridget Fonda is in this film uncredited. But anyway, Peter Fonda's character is named Wyatt, but is never referred to as Wyatt. He is referred to as Captain America. Wyatt is he referred to as Captain America? Two reasons. A, his motorcycle is festooned in American flag colors and designs. And two, he represents the best of America. Somehow I doubt this, but continue. <laughs> but also, as I said, their characters are Billy and Wyatt, as in Billy the Kid and Wyatt Earp. Do you mean William the Kid? I do. I do. Or Billiam, if you will. A little unformal for me. I prefer William. Uh, all right. All right. So you mentioned the soundtrack, which is quite brilliant. I loved listening to this movie as we were watching it. So tell us a little bit about the soundtrack. Andy, let me see if you've heard of any of these before. Have you heard of the band Steppenwolf or perhaps the song Born to be Wild? Wasn't Born to be Wild used in a Madagascar film? Have you heard of the Jimi Hendrix experience? Is that a Jimi Hendrix cover band? Right, and their famous work is If Six Was Nine. Have you heard of The Band and their song, The Wait? Are you punking me right now? I feel like I'm being punked. Have you heard of 
So there's this Nobel Prize winner for literature. And though he spent his life creating great works of literature, which is why he was honored with a Nobel Prize for literature, he made a couple of really small indie albums. I'm, I'm of course, talking about Bob Dylan. Have you heard of Bob Dylan? Isn't he the uh, evangelical singer? Just so. The soundtrack, we're talking Steppenwolf, Jimi Hendrix Experience, the band who was, for a time, Bob Dylan's band from the Basement Tapes, but they also had that huge song, The Wait. Bob Dylan does not appear on the soundtrack, but his song, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, is performed by Roger McGuinn, who is the main character in the band The Birds. So this is like counterculture soundtrack 101 right here. Just like a collection of classic rock hits that back in the late 60s were not classic rock hits. They were just hits. So for those of us who were born after 1989, could you tell us more about this idea of counterculture? When you're talking about counterculture, are you talking about things that existed in the 60s and 70s? Are you talking about a specific movement? What's, what's the definition that we're working with here? In the 80s, there was a very famous TV show. Are you sure it wasn't in the 90s? Pretty certain this was in the nineties. I'm quite sure. This show was called Family Ties. Most people know about it because of Michael J. Fox. I think it was horsing around, but continue. <laughs> so the the parents in the in the in the sitcom Family Ties are hippies who grew up during that time in the late sixties. They protested, you know, and and things like that. And the joke is their son Alex P. Keaton, played by Michael J. Fox is a raging Republican, like a raging Reagan Republican. And so it's it's this really... And so that show was on when I was growing up. And I saw most of the episodes in syndication and then saw some of the later episodes while it was still running. But the whole premise of the show is what happens when hippies grow up. And during Reagan's time, which is before 1989, just before 1989, a lot of those hippies, the ones who are still alive, have become conservative. A few of them had stayed liberal, but it's really, really hard to move to the suburbs, own a house, raise a family, and keep that hippie aesthetic, which is why Family Ties was such a good show, because they did a good job of really trying to walk that line. I'm growing up during this time period, 20 years after. What the counterculture is, is that rebellion against the status quo at that time. It's anti-Vietnam War. It's you know, anti-easy listening pop music. It's anti-moving out to the suburbs. It's not as much as it should have been, but it's it's anti-racism. There are some ties between counterculture and civil rights, although recently we've been exploring in some films that came out the last year, especially the tension between quote-unquote counterculture and the civil rights movement. They overlapped, but they were not the same thing. Now, really, really quickly for our listeners, you might know Michael J. Fox as the voice of Stuart Little in the Stuart Little trilogy. Right. Little, little known actor. Andy, since you were born after 1989, did you know that Ronald Reagan, the actor, was a president? Ronald Reagan? <laughs> Again, not relevant to me. Nothing Reagan did is relevant to my life right now. Nothing he did. <laughs> has any impact at all on the way our country is today. (laughs) 
So, I, I mean, I also think a lot of what this film is, and I want you to talk a little bit more about it here in a second, but there's also a lot of, like, anti-capitalism, pro-sex. Like, there's a lot of just very much rebelling against... Wait, you can get paid for sex, like, professionally? But, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of just, like, very anti-society things in this film. So... This is the prequel to Joker! So, do you recommend this film? So first of all, Andy, I'm going to blow your mind and say that when you see SW, as in SW deserves respect, it doesn't stand for Star Wars. No, 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 no. It does because of how, how much people hated the best Star Wars movie, Rogue One. SW deserves respect. You know, you think I'm going to argue with you on this, but I'm not going to. And we'll talk more about the counterculture here in just a moment. So there's this really fun... It's not a mumble fact, because I'm not going to say it here on the podcast, but it is an interesting piece of trivia about why Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were going to be the feature of the soundtrack, but were kicked off at one point in the process. But to go back to what Andy said about Reagan, in, in the 1980s, Neil Young, a, mum, a member of the counterculture, Right, is famous because of the stuff that he did with Buffalo Springfield and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and on his own, wrote a whole album about anti-Reagan stuff. Songs are all anti-Reagan. What's ironic is Neil Young is essentially a conservative. So as these members of the counterculture grow up, they become increasingly more conservative or just weird, as in the case of Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson. Or they die. Yeah. A thing that has nothing to do with the ending. So before we move on to the next segment, I will say I recommend this film because it is for a couple of reasons. One, it is a good lesson in filmmaking. How can you make a film with not much of a budget, with not much of a script, and not much of a clue, and use real drugs and get real high and still produce an award-winning and nominated film. It can be done. It was done. I'm pretty sure it was because they used real drugs and got real high. That's what the Academy loves, right? They love method actors doing their thing on camera. Right. And so, especially as we're looking kind of not too well on method acting at this point, for good reason, Joaquin Phoenix. Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Jared Leto, oh God. Aren't you going to watch My So-Called Life soon for Monkey? Hey. Anyway, so that's a good reason. And two, if you're interested more in the counterculture, this is one of those really good artifacts and I shouldn't have, I didn't sleep on it. I was awake the whole time. I just chose not to. Don't wait. Watch this film. So Andy, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to pose you this question. So we are putting the clear line at 1989 because you are on record several times in this very episode that nothing matters before 1989. No, no, no. I was born in 1990. So nothing before 1989 matters, though, because I assume that some of my cells did exist in 1989. Ah, okay. But I imagine, I'm just going to take a guess here. Mm -hmm. I imagine that throughout your life, which occurred from 1990 and after, that during those years, somebody, some buddies indeed, have told you that there are essential things that you should see, watch, 
listened to that were created during that time where nothing matters to you. Would you agree with that? You know what? I do agree with that. The problem is that when people start telling me that some things uh, happened before 1989, what ends up happening is it's like I'm watching that old movie, Why Charlie Brown Why, from March 16th, 1990, and all the adults are going, womp, 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 womp. It's like, I don't, I don't understand. Uh, what do you mean this Back to the Future thing? I don't get it. What, what is that? I don't care about that. Is it from before I was born? Oh, it has no effect on me. So this happened a long time ago, many, many years ago. But I was shocked, and I'm still shocked whenever I think about it. So my dad just turned 75 last month. He hates black and white movies. Very much like you. Not, not quite as acerbic as you will say. But my dad does not have any interest in things that, that came out before he was born. And, and for probably most of his childhood as well. But surely there are some things from before your time that people have insisted that are essential. Yes, all the time. Oh, it's so give annoying. Us a, give us a few. Uh, you got to watch Network, man. Network is one of the best films ever. What? No, I'm not going to okay. watch. I'm not going to watch Network. I'm mad as hell that you keep mentioning Network, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Nice. Oh God. Oh, Alfred Hitchcock is so smart and clever. You know who's smart and clever? Roland Emmerich. I don't think I can let you have that one. All right. So you're you're batting 500 on this. Give me something else. Let, let Let's go with uh Orson Welles. <laughs> you, you you know what? Orson Welles, your last uh, thing that you did was uh, was the voice of something in a thing called Transformers. I don't know anything about Transformers. I only know Beast Wars. We're 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 gonna we're gonna keep going on here. Oh, you need to read The Prince. The Prince is so good. I don't need to read The Prince. I can just watch the adaptation of of The Prince, uh, which I believe is called Cheaper by the Dozen with Steve Martin. Uh, oh oh. Uh, you need you need to to sit and you need to sit and watch uh, uh Turner and Hooch Turner and Hooch the movie from 1986. Well, you know what? Disney Plus just solved that problem for me. It's no longer relevant. Newer is always better. Okay. Oh, this thing called Star Wars. Yeah, I saw Star Wars. I saw the pod racing. It was really cool. Thanks. I don't need to know anything more about it. I know how it ends. Okay. I all all I know is. At some point, the main character goes off, kills a bunch of kids, and then all of a sudden, we're at his we're at his uh, grandchildren's story. It's great. I don't need to know anything else about Star Wars beyond that. <laughs> Hope, uh, yeah, no. In in, in 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 all in all seriousness, now I'll I'll get to this. Yeah, there there are tons of things that I keep being told that I need to watch. One of them is actually Casablanca. Casablanca is supposedly one of the greatest movies of all time, and I do want to watch it. I I like like I I, I want to. I, I I crave that. I just haven't. Pretty much any of Bruce Lee's filmography. I, I want to watch it. I, I really genuinely do. Tessa, same question. Well, so I, I approach this with two different things because there is obviously a lot of stuff. Uh, I was also born in 1990. So there's obviously a lot of stuff that exists pre-1990 that I just have never gotten around to. And I think there's a couple of things... I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, unlike Andy, do care about stuff that came out before 1989. I love old movies. I love uh, older music and, and everything like that, including what I'm going to talk about today later. I think there are two real barriers to watching things that came out before 
you were born. One of them is you're not always going to connect with something that exists within a specific moment of time, especially if you don't have nostalgia for it like certain other people do. So like when we watched Easy Rider, you really connected with this movie because you recognized the types of counterculture that you were used to experiencing when you were a child, even though it also came out before you were born. I liked the movie a lot, but I didn't connect with it as emotionally as you did, mainly because I wasn't raised in those types of counterculture discussions. So we're going to talk more about that here in a minute. So there are certain things that I think come out in certain times, in certain moments in history that have certain nostalgic things attached to them that you can't always get back if you were born later. You can appreciate them for what they are, for the art that they are, but you're not going to necessarily emotionally connect with them in the same way. The second thing that I think really stops you from always appreciating or always getting to, actually, I think this is a barrier that happens, like you said, like with Casablanca, something that you actually really want to see and that you do see as being essential, but you still haven't watched it yet, is that sometimes it's actually hard to remember things that that came out before you were born. Like, I, I know that sounds really like self-aggrandizing or selfish or something. Narcissistic, but Tessa. Narcissistic. I'm I am sorry. a narcissist. But I know. It is actually true. Like when you're thinking about, oh, what should I watch tonight? A lot of times you're going to think about things that either came out recently or you're going to think about things that came out in your lifetime just because you have more memories of seeing them advertised or people talking about them or what have you than you are to think about something that you said, oh, I do want to see that, but you just don't have it as firmly in your head as the things that came out during your lifetime. So those are really what I see as like kind of the two barriers for getting things off of your list if they came out before you were born. Okay, so that's a really good point. It's it's hard to know what you don't know. And of course, that's the first step to to true knowledge, right? Is admitting that you don't know what you don't know. Look at Socrates over here. Uh, So but 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 (laughs) Tessa, what what is what is your Casablanca? I thought you were going to ask what what was something someone had asked me to watch that I didn't want to watch or read that I didn't want to read. And it no, was definitely, definitely Infinite Jest. Uh, but I do have no desire to read that. Let me think. An- another thing to bring up, though, is uh, because you're missing context, uh, I grew up knowing that war is hell. Knowing, you know, watching war films that show war as hell. And then I watched The Dirty Dozen, where war is all do-do-do-do-do-do-do, having fun, doing all these things that are really cool, and murdering all these Nazis, uh, and to a, like, pop-in soundtrack. Um, and it's it's realizing that there was a change around the deer hunter in in Vietnam, in, in Hollywood, where they're like, oh, we're going to show the reality of what war does to these characters and stop kind of propagandizing war in a certain way. And it can be really jarring to kind of go from uh, the deer hunter to the dirty dozen. That's true. I just thought of the one that, that is, that is my Casablanca. It's actually the television show, the prisoner from the sixties. I have thought a lot about watching that show. I know it's really good. I'm excited to watch it. What about you? What are, what is your Casablanca, Sam? Would you be terribly surprised if I told you it was music related? I'm shocked, shocked that mu- that there are musicals going on in here. I know, th- I know this one. I know this one. Pick me. I'm. G- I I got a good a good guess. Uh, is it the entire Take Five album by Dave Brubeck? No. Oh. 
So I grew up on oldies radio. That's what my dad played in the car. So if it's a if it's a top forty from the sixties, I've heard it. I've picked up almost everything that's come afterward. But the biggest hole in my music knowledge is late sixties, early seventies R and B and soul. I'm not proud to admit it. If it was a hit from Motown, I've heard it, but I haven't done the kind of deep dives or even deep-ish dives on that that um, I've done with most other times and genres. It's just a it's just a blind spot. It's an unfortunate blind spot. But the thing about blind spots is that we can rectify them at any time. So in a couple of weeks, Andy will be talking about Casablanca. Tessa will be talking about The Prisoner, and I will be talking about some of the seminal albums from Marvin Gaye and Otis Redding. So as, as I throw it to Tessa to talk about Dark Side of the Moon, the last thing I'll say is that as you guys were talking about, I think the internet is a big culprit of some of what you're describing. If you only have the brain space for so many pieces of pop culture, there are that many pieces of pop culture that were produced this week. When I was growing up, there wasn't access to much. You know, so you it was easier to go back. So that stuff from the counterculture, which again was only 20 years ago. It's kind of like talking about, it's not even talking about the 90s hardly anymore because it's like it's like talking about the early 2000s and why would you? But that's that's kind of where we are now, that's where I was back when I first started to know about the counterculture. So I think it matters a lot less just because it's less present and because there's a lot more now that can occupy our attention. And I'm not ragging on the internet saying it's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing that we have so much stuff that the internet has flattened a lot of popular cultures so we have access to it. But we do tend to discount stuff that came before a little bit. So that said, Tessa, you had an experience. So hold on a second. She's never listened to Dark Side of the Moon, but I know for a fact that what Tessa did this week was she hitched a ride on Jeff Bezos's spaceship and flew all the way to the Dark Side of the Moon, reenacting scenes from Apollo 13, Ron Howard's Apollo 13, and going around to the Dark Side of the Moon. Fascinating stuff, Tessa. How was your journey? You know, and Andy, I'd like to point out that Andy knows about this because while I was reenacting scenes from Apollo 13, he was actually on the other end of the radio doing the the stuff with the duct tape, figuring out how I could stay alive. It was really, it brought us closer together. I was, and I didn't even know where she was. That was the craziest part. I was just <laughs> doing this by myself. So yeah, I watched, or I watched, yeah, I listened to the eighth studio album by English prog rock band. Pink Floyd, The Dark Side of the Moon. So I actually listened to it this morning while just like laying on my couch. So it, it was a very chill experience. It was raining a little bit outside. It was just like without actually taking... Yeah, there were frogs that were kind of chirping in the background and I couldn't tell if it was part of the album or not. This album was released in 1973. So again, before 1989, so Andy doesn't care about it. But... It is such an iconic album that something really funny happened to me the other week when I realized I had never actually sat down and listened to this album all the way through before. 
I had heard a lot of Pink Floyd songs and I'd heard songs from this album before, specifically the singles Time and Money, but I had never actually sat down and listened to it as an album. And I hadn't ever actually realized that because the iconography of this album is so ubiquitous and like the jokes about it are so like part embedded in like the pop culture consciousness that I had never actually just sat down and realized, oh yeah, I've never actually listened to this album before. So it was just kind of an odd realization. So I've heard Pink Floyd here and there, but I really grew up, you know, after 1990, I'm a millennial. I grew up not listening to albums. I got my songs off of iTunes originally. And then, you know, I started, I was an early subscriber to streaming services like Spotify. And so, you know, I'm definitely more of a buffet type of listener. And it's only within the last couple of years being with Sam, who is a avid album listener, that I've actually really started to appreciate the album as a work of art, as something that artists put together intentionally, and to listen to more music that way. And so I was very excited because this album has been touted as one of the greatest concept albums of all time. And so I, like I said, just sat down and listened to all 43 minutes of it. So 43 minutes is shorter than the runtime of The Wizard of the Oz. Now, The Wizard of the Oz and Dark Side of the Moon are supposed to sync up. This doesn't make any sense to me. Explain yourself, Tessa. How does The Wizard of the Oz sync up to Dark Side of the Moon perfectly? And how was the experience on multiple forms of LSD and I believe horse meth? So Tessa wants me to field this, at least the first part of that answer. Andy, I have done the thing where you sync up Dark Side of the Moon and The Wizard of Oz. And I In need what you to state know, of sobriety? Yes. But I need you to know that it works. So, like, the great gig in the sky is during the tornado scene. And when the, the scene switches to color is, like, to the second when uh, the, the sound effects and money start happening. Like, it works. It works. It works. It works. Now, if you put Dark Side of the Moon on repeat, it really is only synced up with that first playthrough. But it actually does decently well if you just let it go repeat for the whole movie. So that's the real answer to your question. But I'll turn it back over to Tessa. I I do do have a story about this album because I actually have listened to this album. Uh, It was one of the few albums that I purchased with a Best Buy gift card um, when I was like 14. (laughs) And I was riding my bike. You were a precocious 14-year-old. No, no, no. I really was not. Um, I was just told by my friend who recommended Green Day for me, the best band in the world, that uh, this was like another wonderful album. Anyway. You know, that's not, not that's not as surprising of a statement as I thought you were going to say. Like, I, I can see it. I can see the connections there. The story is that I was riding my bike and listening uh, to my uh, Sony Discman, but it wasn't a Sony Discman. It was a, a a $10 Best Buy battery-powered disc thing with my dollar store earphones because I only listen to the best fidelity. And I was riding my bike, and uh, time came on. And it got quiet, and I'd, I'd never really like heard time before. <laughs> so, so yeah, 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 ex- exactly. I turned up the volume... I keep going, and ultimately, people who've listened to this song know the sound comes on very, very quickly. All of a sudden, and it scared the 
out of me and I fell over and scraped my knee. And I will never forget that. That's what this album did to me. You'll never forgive Roger Waters for scraping your knee. Roger, Sid Barrett, any other one who had anything to do with Pink, that record producer who refers to them as which one of you is Pink and have another cigar. I don't care. All of them, you're all dead to me. Animals, dead to me. Uh, Other, the the wall, no, no, no. I will take that wall apart brick by brick. So I have never done the Wizard of Oz thing, although, again, it's such a part of like pop culture consciousness that I've known about it for a long time. In fact, one of my favorite jokes about it happens in How I Met Your Mother when Ted jokes about doing the same thing, but with is the greatest hits of Weird Al Yankovic, which he watches with Apocalypse Now, and apparently Marlon Brando shows up just at the, at the point when Eat It comes on. And it's, it's just a very funny joke. What's what's really funny, though, is that Dave Brubeck's Take 5 does match up perfectly with A Nightmare on Elm Street. Little known fact. Stop trying to make Dave Brubeck happen. Are you ready for me to talk about the album? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you, you know, the actual thing that people come here and listen. Not, not to hear us bicker. Not to hear me distract both of you from the actual point of the conversation. No. How was the album? How is the album The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd... Uh, the thing that's on tons of uh, science teacher walls in elementary school because it shows the the prism of light reflecting and it looks cool and it's uh, yeah yeah yeah. They wanted to show that they could get down with the youths that that prism al- album cover, which is obviously beautiful. But Dark Side of the Moon is like I said, it's a prog rock experimental album, and I wasn't sure how much of it I was going to like because. Prog rock is not really my thing. Sometimes I think they lean a little bit too far into the noise aspect of it, which if you like that, great. It's just not my my cup of tea. Yeah, I don't like that either. I especially don't like loud noises that come out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, uh, Andy's a little jumpy about this album. It scarred him. But I I really enjoy this album a lot, and I think it's because it is at very early prog rock, and it is this balance between classic rock it has some of the best guitar solos i've heard in a long time david gilmore did the some really solid guitar work but then layered over it is are these sort of found in i don't want to say found in nature but found you know around sounds so like time starts with like you said the the chiming of the clocks money has like sounds of a cash register um, there are all sorts of things that are being sort of sampled and layered over the over the music here, and it creates this really interesting vibe, which I, I was going to mention when you talked about Easy Rider, that Easy Rider is really a movie that is a vibe. This is an album that is a vibe. It, it is a continuous piece of music. It is made for you to listen all the way through in one sitting. In fact, when they first performed it before the album came out, they performed it all in one sitting. And I find that fascinating. Uh, even the songs I had heard before, like Time and Money, actually play completely differently when you listen to the album as a whole. Um, they, they sound completely different. There's a lot more instrumentation going on. And I just, I found that to be fascinating. So Dark Side of the Moon is really a concept album, which I, I know people sort of make fun of the idea of the concept album, although we've seen a resurgence of it in the last few years. Olivia Rodrigo obviously came out with a great concept album about a single breakup. Janelle Monet is the queen of the concept album. This is a concept album about madness. 
The original title was Dark Side of the Moon, A Piece for Assorted Lunatics. And of course, that, that they repeat I believe that. it's Lunartics. So they repeat that later on um, when it comes to the end of the album, the crescendo of the album, as it were, um, in the song Brain Damage and then the Coda Eclipse, where they talk a lot. They kind of make this whole Dark Side of the Moon lunatic uh, parallel together because obviously the word lunatic Luna comes from the moon the idea was the moon can drive you mad and so this album is really about things in society that have the ability to drive you crazy if you think about them long enough and this was a very personal album in a lot of ways which I'll let Sam explain as as he explained it to me earlier and, and by the way when we talk about prog, prog rock that's another hole but I'm not going to fix that hole in my I just don't Although we are going to watch the Sparks documentary. We're looking forward to that. So as I, as I told Tessa, this album is one that can be seen as a tribute to original lead singer Sid Barrett, who was around, was a founding member around for one album and then one song on the second album, and then could not continue with the band because of his own mental illnesses. And so, you know, writing an album and devoting it to this issue of mental illness is definitely a tip of the hat to, you know, what they processed, you know, in losing Sid Barrett. Wish You Were Here, also another album, is about loss, about losing Sid Barrett. And I believe it's Wish You Were Here, the sessions for that, where he wandered into the studio one day and was just like, sounds good. But yeah, so, I mean, this also has that personal connection that you described. And uh, Sid Barrett is actually one of the, um, one, one of the, the, the singers who, like big or big music people that I knew who died in my lifetime. He died on uh, July 7th, 2006. And I will never forget that because it was my 16th birthday. It's a very, very strange feeling. That was like one of the first like feelings of, Oh, this thing that I actually kind of like the person who had something to do with it died. Yeah. And I think that this album is very much that feeling in some ways, because even though he hadn't died yet, there is a real sense of loss in this album and there's a real sense of the things they talk about that can drive you insane are very mundane just day-to-day things they talk about like in time the idea of time being this concept that's actually really perceptual and when you're young you don't realize how time quickly time is passing by and then when you're old you suddenly realize that you've been left behind uh the lyric no one told you when to run you missed the starting gun and of course, also, there's the great line, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way, which I'm not English, but I just found that to be really interesting. I believe colonialism is the English way. It is the English way. And then in money, they say, you know, they have the lyric money. So they say is the root of all evil today. But if you ask for a raise, it's no surprise they're giving none away. So they're talking about like these different aspects of society that are like part of the day to day life. But ultimately, if you think about them too hard, Everything starts to become more surreal. Us and them is clearly anti-war. It's about Vietnam. There's always these conversations under the music. And then, of course, like I mentioned, in Brain Damage and Eclipse, there it really sums up this idea that, you know, the lunatic, who in this case is Sid Barrett, you know, sort of stands as this representative of the ways in which society has you know, driven people to insanity, but then also how insane people present this challenge for society. So uh, you re- rearrange me until I'm sane. You lock the door and throw away the key. There's someone in my head, but it's not me, which is just such a great, great lyric. I, I also really loved the first song, Breathe in the Air. 
which has the lyric, don't be afraid to care, which I think is, uh, that one really struck me because I feel like in where we are right now, you know, with the pandemic and with like all of these, you know, the way that humans have recently shown us some of their worst colors, it's, it is really hard to care. And I feel like that, that line, especially don't be afraid to care. It has a lot more poignancy now than maybe it would have done if I'd listened to this you know, a few years ago. But yeah, it is basically just 10 songs, 43 minutes. You can definitely sit down and listen to it in a listen. I hesitate to make this connection because I don't want to fool you into what kind of music it is. It's not pop. It is definitely solidly in a, in the rock genre. But the way that they sort of layer the sound together really reminded me of Billie Eilish's first album and the way that she takes different sounds and sort of layers it together into, into a, a song. Again, it's not the same kind of music at all, but if you're really interested in listening to something that is experimental but still very enjoyable, as a whole, this album is really a vibe, and not to be too cute about it, considering the iconic cover art, but I would really describe that vibe as prismatic. It's very dreamy. It's very focused on one thing but it creates this sort of atmosphere of exploring madness of exploring sound of exploring a sort of a twisted view of society or perhaps an untwisted view of society depending on how you look at it andy now that we've talked about stuff from the the 60s for a while you'll be relieved to to get out of the past and into the present oh hold on okay so a few weeks ago, you did Final Fantasy XV, and now you're doing Final Fantasy III. That is correct. What's wrong with you? What, 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 what do you mean? Three comes before 15. Yes, so what? There's like 11 numbers between 3 and 15. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't get what the problem is, Sam. If you have played Final Fantasy XV, there's a social contract. That, in a society. that specifies that you have played Final Fantasies 1 through 14. And so the only logical Final Fantasy to play after 15 is Final Fantasy 16 and possibly Mystic Quest. Mystic Quest is on my list, but uh, no, I, I did Final Fantasy. Uh, I, I did that one. I, I, did, I, I did that number. Uh, I, I don't care about your, uh, your rules. All right, fine. So you played Final Fantasy 3, and I've played Final Fantasy 3, but it is a, I'm guessing the Final Fantasy 3 that I played is not the Final Fantasy 3 that you played. Okay, so the Final Fantasy 3 I played, which is, by the way, is called Final Fantasy 3, but is known as Final Fantasy 6 in Japan, is, is the one I played. So that, that, is, that is the case. I played Final Fantasy 3 for the Super Nintendo, which is a uh, port of... Final Fantasy VI for the Super Famicom in Japan. Fine. Tell us what it's about. Okay, so Final Fantasy III, known as Final Fantasy VI in Japan, is the final Final Fantasy that went from 2D to 3D. Strangely enough, Final Fantasy III, known as Final Fantasy VI in Japan, was for the Super Nintendo, and Final Fantasy VII was the next release for the PlayStation in in America and all, all around the world. But we did declare that Final Fantasy 3, known as Final Fantasy 6 in Japan, would be called 
Final Fantasy III in, in America because the amount of time it takes to translate and adjust games from Japanese to English is quite large. So the way it actually went is we got Final Fantasy One, which is Japan's Final Fantasy One. We did not get Final Fantasy Two or Final Fantasy Three. What we got was Final Fantasy Four, but because there was a bit of an issue there, there was an issue just saying, "Hey, you know, Final Fantasy Four, uh, we're afraid uh, to 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 take the risk and um." And, you know, kids won't play it. They'll be looking for two and three and two and three don't exist. So what they did is called it Final Fantasy two. So it's Final Fantasy two known as Final Fantasy four in Japan. They then skipped Final Fantasy five again and went to Final Fantasy six. And that's how we have Final Fantasy three known as Final Fantasy six in Japan. Now, Final Fantasy three known as Final Fantasy six in Japan is considered by many people to be the best Final Fantasy. There are plenty of people who will argue that Final Fantasy VII, which is known as Final Fantasy VII in Japan, is the better Final Fantasy. Uh, I will argue that Final Fantasy III, known as Final Fantasy VI in Japan, is actually one of the greatest RPGs of all time. After hearing what you said, I will say that Final Fantasy III, known as Final Fantasy VI in Japan, is the final Final Fantasy that I had played prior to starting Final Fantasy VII for this very podcast. But it's been a long, long time. I believe you said that game came out in 94. I did not say when the game came out, but I'm sure it did come out in 94 and 95. I don't know. Anyway, Final Fantasy 3, known as Final Fantasy 6 in Japan, is a, it's a deconstruction of the typical swords and sorcery uh, that you might find in the Final Fantasy genre in the Japanese RPG in general. It is about a world that had a, a destructive relationship with magic. Then magic was forgotten and technology came and technology was stronger than magic. And now magic is coming back into this world and you play as Terra and Locke and a bunch of other characters as you go and try to defeat basically um, old Mecha Hitler, um, old Hitler in charge of a bunch of mechs. It's, it's, it's an emperor. His name is Emperor Gestalt. He is he is the bad guy. He is going around and uh, and taking over towns to 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 get more power because you know uh, that's that's what emperors do. When you call yourself an emperor, chances are you're probably going to end up being a bit of a imperialist in some ways, and you're going to be a bit of a tyrant. So that is the start of Final Fantasy III, known as Final Fantasy VI in Japan. You play as Terra, who is a magic user who is uh, brainwashed and being controlled by the emperor. Uh, the entire empire, and she breaks free and finds a ragtag group of rebels, and they go from there. So, quick question. Who is your favorite character, and why is it Sid? It, it actually isn't Sid. Uh, Sid, Sid was kind of cool, but my favorite character is Edgar. Edgar is the king of a country, and he is suave and quite funny. Uh, he is a... a tries to flirt with women, fails spectacularly. It is quite wonderful to watch him. Plus, his special ability as uh, all characters in this JRPG, which stands for Japanese RPG. What, what does RPG stand for? That stands for Real Pretty Game. Oh, I thought it was Rocket Propelled Grenade. <laughs> no, no. That, that would be for the Metal Gear Solid franchise. 
or Rocket League. That would make that game very different. <laughs> very, very different. <laughs> so uh, Edgar's special ability, he's one of the earliest characters you get, is to use tools because I like using tools and it's it's great. And he has a uh, an attack that hits all all opponents for a lot of damage. So I really like Edgar's this game is more than just its story, which, by the way, is very, very good. It does have one of the best villains, the most fun villains um, ever in, in video games, which, which is hard to describe. This villain's name is Kefka, and he is a clown. And I don't mean, oh, he's kind of funny. No, he is a clown. He is the emperor's number two, and he is hilarious he's dressed like a clown he's scary like a clown in fact i would say almost say that he's like mark hamill's joker well you got tessa interested now you know that i played final fantasy 7 last year and it was i enjoyed it but it was difficult to stick with there are as we have discussed many many more final fantasies including 7 and 15 is there any reason to go back and play this one final fantasy 3 known as final fantasy 6 in japan is regarded by many fans to be the best for a reason. And that reason is there's so much innovation in this game. The systems are so much more complex than any other Japanese role-playing game at the time. It is just insane to see how video game storytelling went from whatever it was before this to what it is now today after this. There are multiple scenes in this game that just have enchanted me. And these are all with 2D sprites in, in, in the weirdest possible way. There, there's, a, there's a scene in an opera house where you jump between multiple characters to get their points of views and perspectives of what's going on as uh, another character has to pretend to be able to act. And you have to actually memorize the lines that the character has to say, so you can say them on cue and move the character appropriately. Uh, all in an attempt to pretend to be this big uh, opera, this big famous opera starlet who is about to be kidnapped by a uh, suave, dashing, um, gambling airship captain. Uh, it very, very much uh, in the style of uh, that one character from Princess Bride, which again is a movie I didn't watch because I didn't care about it, uh, but I'm sure it's kind of like the Dread Pirate Robin. There are layers to this game and layers in its enjoyability. For one thing, Kefka is by far the most memorable villain in a Final Fantasy. And I have played the following Final Fantasies. I have played Final Fantasy 1, known as Final Fantasy, in Japan. I have played Final Fantasy 2, known as Final Fantasy 4 in Japan. I have played Final Fantasy 2, known as Final Fantasy 2 in Japan. I have played Final Fantasy 7 known as Final Fantasy VII in Japan. I have played Final Fantasy VIII, known as Final Fantasy VIII in Japan. I have played Final Fantasy X, also known as Final Fantasy X in Japan. I have played Final Fantasy XV. I have played X-2. I have played a lot of Final Fantasies. And Kefka is by far one of the best villains. And here's the extra little oomph that I really enjoy about Kefka being, about this Mark Hamill thing being the best villain. It was all in the English translation. They, in in the original Japanese Final Fantasy VI, he's plays it completely straight. He is just a villainous clown. In the English translation, 
Kefka has been transformed into Mark Hamill's Joker. He makes jokes before doing horrifying things to kill many, many people. Uh, it This game is also incredibly clever with both puns and its willingness to be kind of wacky and kind of funny at the same time. There is a recurring boss character who is an octopus. His name is Ultros. And Ultros follows you around and keeps getting into fights with you. And he's just an annoying thing that the characters can brush off because he's not serious. Well, at one point, Ultros gets the upper hand. And you have a little girl named Realm join your party. And Realm has the ability, she's a 10-year-old girl, and her ability is drawing sketches of things. And when Ultros gets the whole party uh, cornered, Realm comes out of nowhere and is like, you, I want to draw you. And Ultros is like, I'm not going to let a kid draw me. And the whole party goes, dude, what the heck? If a 10-year-old girl says she wants to draw you, let her draw you. Yeah. And he's like, what? No, no, I'm not going to do that. And then Realm starts crying. And then Ultros is like, oh, no, uh, tell Uncle Ulti what, what you want to do. And she's like, I just want to draw you. And this is the introduction to her ability where she draws him. And that painting immediately comes to life and smacks Ultros off the stage. It is willing to be this incredibly goofy and funny game at the same time as it's uh, this serious story of, of uh, human loneliness and, and heartbreak and death and dealing with death. And it just astounds me how good this game is in multiple points of the game, too. You break up and play as just different characters who uh, who are on their own. You get separated by from your party, so you have to go at it alone. And then you finish their scenario and you jump to a different scenario, which covers what this character did in the same time frame. And they all bounce back and forth. There are moments in this game where you think to yourself, "Oh, huh, you you know, um, Edgar is king. I'm gonna go to the castle." as him and try to buy stuff and you know, you buy stuff at the item shop. And when you talk to the item owner, he says, I can't charge the King money. And Edgar responds, you have a family. I'm going to pay for this, but all the prices are still half, right? You get a discount just for thinking, Oh, how, how would this person react if the King was trying to buy stuff from him? There are so many instances like that where you think like, Oh, I wonder if I can do this. And then it happens. Uh, there, there's multiple ways to get out of entire boss fights by understanding who you're fighting and being like, this person is afraid of snakes. I'm going to summon a snake. And then all of a sudden, the boss fight ends in one turn because you actually understood this. This game is insane in its depth, in its storytelling. I, I, I loved it. The music is wonderful. Uh, it has one of the best twists in a game ever and i won't spoil that for you if you've somehow managed to go 25 plus years without this amazing story twist you know this is better than the famous twist in final fantasy 7 known as final fantasy 7 in japan Ab absolutely play it um also by the way final fantasy 7 is known as final fantasy vii in rome i do have a hard-hitting question for you andy Okay. At what point do they have they put out enough Final Fantasies to where they realize it's no longer a Final Fantasy? So, I will go ahead and tell you the history of the Final Fantasy franchise. And by history of the Final Fantasy franchise, I mean why it's called Final Fantasy. You see, 
when Square Software came up with the idea for the game Final Fantasy, they only had the money for one more game. This was going to be the last game that Square Software could have made. And uh, as it turns out, it was a huge hit. So it was no longer the Final Fantasy. Just just a, a nice little factoid here. Uh, but they, are, they have said before that they are going all the way to Final Fantasy Infinite because capitalism demands it. And I'm sure we're going to get Final Fantasy Infinite plus one. So today, Andy, you talked about a rich, complex game that exists on a 512 kilobyte game cartridge. Tessa talked about an album that existed on a single vinyl. And I talked about a movie shot by hippies on film. So these old forms of media are still worth going back to and revisiting. But as far as next week goes, Tessa, what's in, what's, what's in store? So next week, please tune in when I and two of my very, very good friends who've been guests on this podcast, Elise and Megan, are going to talk about romance novels. You all asked for it on Twitter. We're going to do a whole episode based on it. So stay tuned for that. Now, are these Harlequin romance novels? Are these Christian romance novels? Are these the dollar store trash bin romance novels? Are these Daniel Steele novels? Are these going to be something else entirely? Tell me, Tessa, what are you covering? Don't sleep on Danielle Steele. She like writes like five books a year. Like that that lady has been going for a long time. You'll have to tune in. We're going to talk about all sorts of romance novels next week. We've got lots of good stuff coming up in the next few weeks. We're also going to have the Hoisted on Your Own Petard episode where we talk about some of those things we mentioned in segment two today. We've got an episode coming up where Andy tells us what to do, what to watch. What to see. <laughs> They're so stupid. They let me do it. <laughs> We've also got a multi-episode spectacular that'll help us get ready. Finally, maybe there will finally be time for James Bond and No Time to Die. And Tessa, if I'm not mistaken, that's going to bring us all the way up to another special event. What's that called? Spooktober! So all that's coming up in the next few weeks. In the meantime, Andy, where can we find you online? You can find me online on Twitter at AndyNoted. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Tessa. How do you spell Swayla? Swayla is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris9. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts about what we talked about today, anything you'd like to see us talk about on future episodes, and anything else pop culture related. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.